Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. During the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, photographers who were members of the New York Photo League, many of whom were Jews, documented working-class street life in New York City. And without quite realizing it at the time, they pioneered a new form of photography. It's very different from what previously existed. They're very much opposed to what was called pictorialism. They're very much opposed to, which is all soft features. They wanted what they called straight photographs that were unmanipulated of of people in natural light where you don't mess around in the uh, dark room with no special filters. This is Deborah Dash Moore, a professor of history and Judaic studies at the University of Michigan. Her most recent book, Walkers in the City, Jewish Street Photographers of Mid-Century New York, is about the Jewish photographers who roamed the streets of Manhattan and other New York boroughs throughout the Great Depression, during World War II, and into the post-war era. And they left behind an amazing record of life as it was being lived, because this was their city for the most part, although I do talk about some photographers who come to New York from elsewhere and make it their city. But it's their city, and they have very clear ideas about what the city is. The the city is its people and how those people live. So the book is both a visual exploration of New York in those decades, and at the same time, an exploration of the lives of these photographers and the choices that they made as they went to take photographs. The book's title is a nod to another book, literary critic Alfred Kazin's A Walker in the City, published in 1951, about the Brooklyn neighborhood of Brownsville, where he grew up. Moore chose to title her book as a riff on Kazin's title because what Kazin did in A Walker in the City is akin to what the photographers Moore writes about did in their work. Namely, to treat the working-class neighborhoods and people they chronicled as consciously poetic, and to assume that culture and its riches were available not only to the rich, but also to working-class people. There's a section of the book where I specifically have photographs of Brownsville and the neighboring uh, area called East New York that were taken by N.J. Jaffe, who's a photographer, starts taking photographs after World War II. So it corresponds with when Kazin is looking back. And Jaffe writes, and I, I quote from here, that to photograph ordinary people was a way of ennobling their existence. And he adds, affirming my own. And I think that that really connects to why this title is relevant for all of these photographers. Moore got the idea for a book about New York Jewish photographers while working on another book, A Visual History of New York. While searching for photographs for the book, Moore narrowed down the options to those taken by photographers who were willing to have their shots included in the book. The photographers were curious about where Moore had seen their work. And I told them, you know, where I had seen them. 
And they said, oh, they just have a very small collection. Why don't you come you know, to my studio and I'll show you more? So I started going around New York City to the studios of these photographers and looking at their work, which was great. And gradually it's dawning on me, oh, this is a Jewish photographer. Oh, this is a Jewish photographer. Oh, not all, but almost all of them were Jewish photographers. And I realized there was something there that I had stumbled on, which I had not been aware of. Moore wasn't alone. Photography wasn't seen as a particularly Jewish art form, and even the most accomplished Jewish photographers were not very well known, especially compared to Jewish writers and musicians, such as, for example, Saul Bellow and Yitzhak Perlman. And yet, as Moore discovered, Jews were very prominent in the New York photography scene for reasons that make a lot of sense in hindsight. They go into it in part because there are no restrictions. It's brand new. You don't need to go to school particularly. You can apprentice to learn how to do it. It's mechanical. So it's artistic elements are often challenged, right? I mean, after all, you know, you can take a picture. I can take it. Everybody can take a picture, right? But it, it has become something that more and more people are aware of. The Jewish photographers were very influential in the 20th century in, in many different parts of the world. The photographers that Moore chronicles in her book were members of the New York Photo League, an organization established in 1936 that was home to many Jewish photographers, such as Sid Grossman, an eloquent 23-year-old who wanted the Photo League to be open to amateurs. And there's a vote taken. And Grossman wins. <laughs> and the, the professionals walk out and they set up across the street. But this becomes the nexus of what will then be a school. Saul Liebson and Sid Grossman establish a school two years later so that workers can f- gain access to photography as a means of expressing themselves, doing meaningful work, etc. And it becomes a place where not only are there classes, but there are exhibits. They have Friday night get-togethers where they have parties and they have lectures on photography. I mean, it's a, it's a very happening kind of place in very modest circumstances in a loft just north of Union Square in, in Manhattan. The New York Photo League wasn't officially a Jewish organization, but because so many of its members were Jews, it had a kind of Jewish sensibility and especially embodied a Jewish way of thinking and talking about photography. I think what it meant was a a level of energized debate and not always willing to let someone finish a sentence, right? If you had a really important point to make. And this kind of discussion that was very passionate. A number of the photographers speak about the passion that was present there. I mean, you you had to really care about photography. It wasn't enough to just say, as Sandra Wiener said, you know, to go out and take pictures, but you had to develop a point of view. You had to have a a perspective. And it was was a process of, of forming, in a sense, part of your personality. The Jewish photographers of the Photo League also embraced politics that we've come to see as distinctively Jewish. 
These are men and women on the left. Some of them are communists. Some of them are socialists. Some of them are New Deal Democrats. But they're men and women of the left. And I see that as expressive of their Jewish upbringing and their their Jewish concerns in the context of New York City of those years, which was a pretty left-wing town. It was a union town, and Jews are really supportive of that. The style of photography that these Jewish photographers pioneered reflected their politics. Their subjects were everyday working people going about their lives, and deliberately not New York's majestic skyline and other glamorous features of city life. In fact, the Jewish photographers of the Photo League explicitly rejected that more commercial style of photography. For example, Dan Wiener, a Photo League member who went on to become a well-known photojournalist, was once driving from Brooklyn back to Manhattan with the famous playwright Arthur Miller, and Miller suggested that the sun glinting off the skyscrapers would make a great photo. And Wiener says, no. And Miller says, I'll stop the car. And Miller says, no. There are no people in it. He said, well, but you know, the, the the red sun burning in the eyes of Wall Street, you know, he goes into a sort of Marxist analysis and Wiener says, no, no, that's, that's not where photographs have meaning. It's, it's when you take photographs of people that they have meaning. And it's a, it's a really great exchange between the two. Other Photo League members who went on to become successful, including N.J. Jaffe, Sid Grossman, and Saul Liebson, shared a similar sensibility. A photo of an Italian street festival, taken by Grossman, is particularly striking. There are the lights and everything, and blurred. And this is a reflection in part of what he experienced in Panama, because he took photographs there of a Black Christ festival a street festival. And it sort of attuned him to other modes of of expression on the streets of the city. So I I, I talk a bit about what this Italian street festival meant for the Italian-Americans participating, but also for someone like Grossman, who's coming to see the expressiveness that is present on the streets of the city as well. A photo taken by Saul Liebson in 1938, titled Hester Street, is another classic. It features an older woman in a house dress standing on the steps of an optometrist's office. Around her are other figures, looking at something off to the left, or at each other, or at the photographer. It's an it's a incredible freeze, as it were, of, of the picture. But the lower half of the picture are people walking on the street, which is where Liebson himself was. This one guy looking at Leibson, like, what are you doing here? And then there's a kid, and he's blurred because he's in, in motion, and he too is looking at the photographer. And then there's somebody coming up from some stairs from a, a grocery store down below, and he's looking at the photographer and has stared to enough to make someone turn to look at him. So what you're getting is these uh, arrays of looks that travel across the city. And as anyone who's lived in New York, today included, knows that people look in the city. They look at you, you look at them, and you're always involved in these cross-cutting looks given, looks taken, looks, you know, looks where people turn away or withholding their look. And it's sort of 
very much part of the, what the texture of the city is. It's, it's part of a chapter I call looking because that really is how one sets up what the city is. It's a place for looking. In fact, looking is the title of one of the book's chapters. Another is Letting Go, featuring photographs of New Yorkers hanging out and blowing off steam at Coney Island. One of the most famous Coney Island photos in the book is by Ouija, the professional name of Arthur Felig, a prominent photographer and photojournalist known for his stark black and white photos of New York street life. And it's a photo of masses of people. I mean, you cannot see an inch of sand. Coney Island on a very hot day. And Ouija took the photo by standing on a lifeguard stand and, you know, waving his hands around and stuff and getting everybody to look at him. And then he took it. And so that's one type of photo of Coney Island, right? Another type of Coney Island photo was more intimate. For example, a photograph by Harold Feinstein of a group of teenagers lounging on the sand features a girl among a group of teenage boys. She's got her, her dress on and uh, is holding a, um, uh, a portable radio. And, you know, Feinstein remembers. They said, hey, mister, you know, take our photo, right? take our picture. Right? So he did. He wades into this group of people and he takes takes their photograph. And it's not published at the time particularly, but a number of years later, it does get published in Life magazine. And the a relative of the woman writes to Feinstein and says, oh, that's my, I think it's my, my cousin. And she's as beautiful today as she was then. They're, they're smiling broadly, these, these teenagers. Feinstein was a teenager too, right? I mean, it was one teenager taking, a photo, taking photographs of other teenagers. So that's, that's part of what's in Letting Go. Some of the photos in Letting Go are more ominous in tone and subject matter. About 10 years after Feinstein took his photo, photographer Bruce Davidson embedded himself with a street gang called the Jokers. They go to Coney Island. Here's a photograph that is far more dark, should I say. It's of a, of a, a guy, a gang member, and his girlfriend right, on the beach. She's smoking, and it's it just, it, they're looking at him in a way like, you know, what are you doing here? <laughs> well, they knew what he was doing there. But I think it reflects in part a change in attitudes towards having your picture taken, right? And by 1959, it's not what it was in 47. Another chapter, titled Going Out, features photos of kids and adults out in the streets. One of the most striking pictures, taken by Vivian Cherry, is titled Yorkville Swastika. It depicts kids in the Yorkville neighborhood of Upper East Side Manhattan play fighting. And the swastika is on the wall behind them. And, you know... The title makes this a political photograph because it reminds viewers, it was taken in the late 40s, that this neighborhood was a center of support for Nazis, at least prior to the U.S. entering the war, and that swastikas didn't disappear from the the walls and, and Um, and streets of New York City after World War II. In a chapter called Waiting, Moore includes photos of people waiting. An exemplary picture taken by Rebecca Lepkoff shows a young woman with her purse clutched under her arm looking up the block. And then there are 
two younger boys, one looks already a teenager and the other one preteen, drinking soda pop in the doorway of a store. And next to her are two older women sitting on a bench outside and a man standing with his arms akimbo talking to them. And they're also, you know, waiting. But the the picture with the dappling of the light and everything really evokes a sort of mood of expectation. In a chapter titled Talking, the photos capture a time long before cell phones, the 1940s, when only around half of New Yorkers owned private phones, which meant that people had to meet in person out on the street to have conversations. A photograph taken by Helen Levitt captures this perfectly. It shows three women. Actually, four. Three women that you can see who they are. One woman has a baby carriage and she's talking. And two women are standing there listening to her. The woman who's talking has her hand on the baby carriage and she's sitting on a upturned crate outside the the tenement entrance where the two women have paused to talk as one assumes they're about to go upstairs. There's a fourth woman who has a newspaper and the newspaper is open and the headline is about the Allies attack in Italy, right? 1943. And so you can't see her because she's engaged in reading her photograph. But it's a it's a wonderful mood of talking that is captured. The book's final chapter, Selling, looks at street commerce. It begins with a famous photo taken by photographer Morris Engel of a Harlem merchant as part of a photo league project called the Harlem Document. He's in a very small street, you know, one of these these containers that, that sit on the street, and he has his merchandise below, and he's got a little window, right, for selling tobacco and candy and, you know, small items that don't cost that much. And he's looking straight at you, which means he was looking straight at Morris Engel and his camera. And it's a very powerful photograph, just that straight-on encounter. And because he calls it Harlem Merchant, he places it for us, right, as to where this man is sitting, who this man is, right, a resident of Harlem, the assumption is, right, a black man. The photographers of the New York Photo League and the style they invented had a major impact on the photographers who came after them, on photojournalism, and on photography generally. And at a time when we all have cameras in our pockets and use them to more often than not take pictures of ourselves, it's fascinating to look at photos of other people taken by photographers whose aim was not just to capture working-class New Yorkers in their native element, but to celebrate and ennoble them. I think it would be great if looking at the photographs, people come to recognize that the city was common ground and that they might inspire these photographs, respect for others as neighbors. We've got so much today that is antagonistic and and these were real efforts to to picture neighbors and to get to know them. And finally, I suppose 
there's this difficult issue of the of a moral responsibility for looking, which these photographers claimed they possessed, that they were aware of the moral implications of looking. And that inflected the kinds of photographs that they took. So those would be great things to take away from the book. In addition to enjoying all these wonderful photographs. You've been listening to Frankly Judaic, a production of the Jean and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The podcast is produced by Conversa. The executive producer is Maya Barzilai. You can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. And if you like the show, please give it a five-star review. Thanks for listening.